0: Uh, If you have a Bible with you, could you be turning to uh, the letter of 1 Timothy, which we began looking at uh, last week uh, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Last week our focus was really verse 3 or verse 3 and 4. Uh, I'm going to begin by reading from verse 3, but our focus this week will be on verse 5 and 6 and 7 or thereabouts. So right at the beginning of his letter, Paul writes this. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So as we began uh, last week looking at this letter from uh, the Apostle Paul to his co-worker and friend, indeed he calls him my true son, my true child, uh, Timothy, we saw that the the letter has a, a, a dual purpose, or certainly a dual audience. It's written very much with Timothy in mind to encourage him in what he's doing and how he's ministering in Ephesus in a situation which is a bit tricky. But he is also writing this letter on the understanding that it's as though the the church in Ephesus is looking over Timothy's shoulder or that Timothy is using this letter to speak to the church. It's It's for their ears as well. And as we looked last week, we saw this strong uh, instruction from Paul to Timothy, stay there and command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. It might have sounded like uh, quite a strong uh, instruction. We might think, well, is that a bit too strong? If the whole point is we're wanting to be this community of grace and faith, that doesn't sound all that calm and genteel but no this is this is what uh, Paul needs to say he needs Timothy to follow this uh, instruction for the good and the health of the church and from verse 5 onwards it's like he explains why he's needed to say that or rather he answers that question that might be in Timothy's mind isn't that a bit strong isn't that harsh maybe it's in the church's mind or maybe it's in our mind he says well he's going to tell us what the goal of his command is so first visual aid in a moment. Goals are what we aim for. Goals are what footballers dream of scoring. It's not the most glamorous of pitches, but there we have, uh, have a goal. Uh, some great teams are fantastic at keeping possession, at very neatly passing the ball between themselves. And maybe at the end of the match, the, the, the statistics are immediately presented they had 72% possession. The other team are all, all the time just trying to hold their position. They don't see so much of the ball. But sometimes even in matches like that, the team with the lion's share of possession loses in one moment, there's a counter-attack, and this team scores a goal against them. And sometimes the manager comes on at the end and is interviewed by somebody um, for match of the day. And they probably blame the referee... And then they probably blame the opposing team. They've killed the beautiful game. We we have a certain philosophy. We have a certain approach to playing this game. And our way of playing the game is beautiful. And so the other team should re- respect us and allow us to play in such a blue- beautiful, flowing way. But all they've done, they've just parked the bus. They've just set themselves out to spoil our fun. And then they've, they've broken up the pitch and they've scored a goal. It should never be allowed. They've forgotten the whole point is to score goals. Yes, it's obviously important to prevent them being scored against you, but teams only win a game if they score goals and if they score more than the opposition. That's the, that's the focus. That's what all their training goes into. They might adapt different formations, different styles, different times, but with the same outcome in mind, they want to score um, that's what they're all working together to that aim. It might be that someone's playing in defence. might be someone's playing in goal. But as a team together, they want to score goals. And whether it was absolutely exquisite, obviously there's no keeper in that picture, but maybe um, they've kind of had this flowing, passing move. Uh, they've kept the ball for ages. Every player on the pitch in their team has had a touch of the ball, has passed it on. But it, they get into the penalty area and the striker... Gives the keeper the eye, the the keeper dives the wrong way and he strokes it the other way. It's the top corner, it hits the post and the bar and then goes in. Oh, it was exquisite. Or, it was really, really scrappy, kind of true English centre-forward style, elbows and just a big melee in front of the goal and eventually someone manages to get a foot on it and just whack it in. It's not beautiful at all, but guess what? It counts just the same one goal. There are no points for style. And so teams focus on what it's going to take to score. And, and, and goal, someone watching the game is, is up, they're spectating, and maybe it's the, the dying moments of the game. There's just a few moments left. And their team's only going to go through to the next round if they score one more goal. And so spectators all the way around the stage are just nervous. And what are they are doing? Oh God, let us get another goal. Goals are what we pray for. That's what we what we're asking God for. Um, and goals are what we celebrate. Not just in terms of football, but moving on to our next lovely image. Uh, when somebody reaches a goal, when someone uh, gets the grade, when someone can throw away their L plates because they pass the test, they've they've reached their goal. What do we do? We congratulate we celebrate we might make here i made something for the occasion well done have a cake we bring a contribution to the party uh, because there's something that's worth celebrating they they reached their goal they made their goal we we want to make a fuss We want to give a gift want to congratulate them in some way so paul is saying here's the here's the goal here's what i'm here's what i'm aiming for here's what my focus is on Here's what I pray about, and here is what's worth celebrating. Now, what do you think it should be at that point for the great Apostle Paul to say, here's what we're really going for. It's all about, well, it's all about love. The goal of this command is love. This is what Paul is aiming for. He is expressing love to Timothy, even in the moment when he's saying, stay there in Ephesus I know it's not hard but my true son this is this is because of love he loves Timothy he loves the church this precious people that need uh, need love they need protecting he wants to bless them he even he loves the false teachers the dodgy elders Um, he's uh, got a fairly strong way with dealing with them but His desire is that they be taught ultimately not to blaspheme. They've so drifted away. It's it's not out of um, dislike. He's not happy to be rid of them. It's necessary for the goal of love and love for God. It's what he's praying about. Obviously, he's written to this church before where Timothy is now serving and in Ephesians chapter 3 we see what he prays uh, about in Ephesians chapter 3 and partway through verse 17 he says there uh, having described this wonderful gospel he says I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. His uh, revelation in this wonderful message of the gospel in Christ, what it leads him to do is to pray, and what it leads him to pray is, Oh God, may they grasp just how amazing your love is. That's what he wants. That's what he's praying about. Jesus too would speak to his uh, disciples, and in John chapter fifteen, he would talk to them about remaining in my love, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Now remain in my love. He goes on in in John fifteen and verse twelve to say what his command is. My my command is this: love each other as I have loved you. So the goal of this command is love. And for us, looking over Timothy's shoulder in reading this letter, uh, the goal is that we become and grow in being a community of love, a community that is loving God, a community that's loving each other, a community that's loving our neighbours, it's loving the lost, it's loving our enemies, it's loving the world. That's the point. That's, that's the goal. That's what we're wanting to aim for. Love is the goal. Love is not a temporary style or technique to adopt as though really we're aiming for some other, uh, other goal, some other end. It's not, the fact, it's not like wearing a mask. Last week I brought you the drum. We had a bit of a Blue Peter moment yesterday evening. Uh, I'm bringing you a mask. It's like, we can think of it in, in those ways. We can think that, that love is something that you adopt. It's a posture that you, you adopt. You you wear a mask, uh, appropriate for the moment, and how you might be serving in the kingdom. And then later on, you get to... Goodness me, that was hard work. Let me put it down. Someone, there's a knock on the door again. Oh, Hello, Hi. Welcome. Do, do come in, please. Make yourself at home. <laughs> it's, it's not something we do to get some other result. Church is to be a community of love. Sometimes churches can drift away from that goal. Their love becomes temporary or their love becomes diluted in some way. Uh, in the book of Revelation... Uh, Jesus wants to grab the attention of a few churches, and one of them is the church that meets in Thyatira. And Jesus pray, he encourages them, he praises them. Uh, in Revelation chapter 2, he says, and in verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, that you're now doing more than you did at first. They, uh, he genuinely encouraged them, Their their love and faith. They're serving one another. They're persevering. They keep going. And the ways in which they're loving have, have grown. They're, they're doing more than they did at first. This is, this is wonderful. But what does Jesus then say? Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants uh, into sexual immorality and so on. Without dwelling majorly on the issue of... Um, this person who's behaving in the way that Jezebel behaved—it's just they were loving, but their their love was limited in some ways. They they weren't prepared to challenge. They weren't prepared to command. You can't command, Paul. What are you talking about? You can't command. Timothy can't command certain people not to preach false doctrine. You can't just turn up at a church and say to Hymeneus and Alexander, "You are doing so much damage; it's time for you to leave." Out. That's that's simply not, not loving. No, the, the loving thing to do is is always to try to keep people happy. Now you can start to see that the goal is a bit different. The goal has now become pe- keeping people happy. Keeping. We don't want anyone to, need to feel. Unloved well, subtly, then the goal is something different it 's all about tolerance it's all, it's all, maybe that 's because it's all about it 's all about numbers. The goal of this command is numbers, keeping people in, keeping people with you and 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 growing. If you start to talk about sin, if you start to challenge, well, people might go, they might leave, maybe that might mask another another goal where churches can subtly drift towards making that the big deal how's church going oh it's great the bank balance is looking really healthy at the moment more people means more giving more giving means more money more money means more security and maybe that means other other benefits but oh it's it's shifted now to something else we don't want to make just numbers the the, the goal of course we want to grow in in numbers, because we want people to know the gospel, we want to make disciples. But let's not make that the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal is love. In the same uh, book, in Revelation, uh, Jesus actually there wants to grab the attention of the church in Ephesus as well. What does he say to them? Well, again, Jesus has uh, something to commend them with in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. It's like, well, they're good for stand, you know, they're good at standing up against those who are preaching error and trying to draw people away. That you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Well done. Genuinely well done. Yet I hold this against you. You've, you've forsaken your first love. Perhaps there in Ephesus at that time, their goal was being right. Their goal was being pure. Their goal was uh, winning arguments and therefore perhaps they were quite good at at homing in on people who might disagree on a point here or a point there and without love, just trying to beat them. It's not not wrong to be in, in meaningful debate and and look to have a high regard for the truth. We we want to be a people who who sharpen one another in a positive way, that we grow uh, in in understanding and knowledge. Nevertheless, the ultimate goal is still love. And at that point in Ephesus, their love had grown cold, or their love perhaps was was old. It was more important to prove they were right. And sometimes Christians or so-called Christians can be better. At hating than loving they've got a focus on a particular issue a particular doctrine or a particular aspect of of the bible or of church life and they've just got their radar out to find people that disagree with them and as soon as they find someone that they disagree with they're just going to hammer them and have an argument and feel good about themselves in doing so the goal of this command is love how do we cultivate how do we cultivate this love? I'll mention three things that Paul mentions here, and I'll mention them quickly. How do we grow in love? By cultivating three things. Like having a, a, a plant and wanting to make sure that it produces as much fruit, as much love as possible. It needs, uh, it needs some work. It needs some effort on our part. It needs some effort by cultivating, firstly, a pure heart. Heart here is not just talking about our emotions or our feelings, as we might sometimes refer to uh, what my heart says, but really it's talking about all of our thoughts, attitudes, and desires um, that are on the inside. And Paul's saying here, this comes from a pure heart, one that's not contaminated by mixed motives or wrong motives. It's like this heart is, is like soil that's been well sifted So all the stones and the rocks that could choke the plant or limit its growth have been taken out. So, making our hearts pure is a deliberate choice on our part. If you remember the, the old song now, purify my heart. Well, it's no bad song. David prayed himself, didn't he, in Psalm 51, creating me a pure heart, O Lord. But it's not to say that it's just a passive thing. Respond today and just allow the, just allow the Lord to do everything for you. Create in me a pure heart, Lord. I will put no effort into it, but I will just give it all to you. You can do it, Lord. Come on, God. Give me a pure heart. So, well, we've got a part to play in... Uh, in sifting our own hearts, noticing where where any attitude or motive is is mixed by something else, by by pride or by greed or by the desire to be right um, or whatever else. Now I, I want to repent from that. Um, in in two Timothy chapter two and verse twenty two, Paul would later write to Timothy to flee some things and pursue others. If you're going to flee something, that's talking about a deliberate choice and a deliberate effort. On Timothy's part, on our part. We need to flee from unrighteousness. We need to flee from greed. We need to flee from pride. We need to flee from lust. We need to flee from absolutely anything and everything that kind of contaminates our heart. And pursue things. And pursue God. And put him first. To receive the word of God. Jesus spoke, didn't he, about... Out of uh, our hearts, comes the overflow of our hearts, the mouth speaks. Actually, if, if, if I have stored up in my heart uh, bitterness or jealousy or, or anger or self-righteousness, then it, it will come out, and my words won't be loving. Maybe it's just a case of finding fault with somebody. a flash of temper. Or whatever else. No, if we're storing up good things in our hearts, that's our choice, that's our action, then love, that fruit of love, will come from our lips. If we're storing up other things, we we won't be able to hide it. At some point, it's going to come out. Let's cultivate a pure heart. Let's cultivate a good conscience. Conscience is that immediate thought or feeling that jabs us. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't have said that. That it's not, it was not, it's not right. It's not good. It's not, it's not holy. It's not pure. But I still want to. Paul actually, in the in one Timothy, when he's writing to Timothy, mentions conscience quite a few times. He can say of himself. I've served God with a with a clear conscience, with a, with a good conscience, with one that's clear. He's not saying I'm perfect. He's saying I've learned to listen and obey my conscience. That's in stark contrast to Hymenaeus and Alexander. We read about at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 1, rather than holding on to a good conscience, some have rejected these and have so shipwrecked their faith. Apparently the uh, the captain of the Titanic ignored a number of warnings on that infamous voyage. Nearing the end of his career, perhaps, wanted to, wanted to get the record, wanted to make the fastest voyage. We're plowing on, we're steaming on. There are icebergs. There's a warn- There are a number of warnings, I can do it, we're okay, I'm experienced, I'm going to keep going. Just ignoring the warnings, reasoning them away. It's okay, I've, I've been doing this for a while, I'm mature enough, I'm, I, I've got it covered, I'm okay. I know I'm sailing quite close to a problem, but I'm, I'm sure I'll manage to avoid it. And if we ignore our conscience, we can end in the same way, in shipwreck. So don't ignore your conscience. So imagine uh, you're with a friend, it's a nice hot day. You've bought an ice cream on a stick, you've unwrapped it, you've taken the plastic wrapper off, you have consumed the whole thing, it's just really delicious. And you're left with a sticky wrapper and some wooden or plastic stick. You've got no bag, you've gone for a bit of a walk, there's no bin immediately nearby and your friend just throws it on the floor. Whether you want it to or not, your conscience just comes in and jabs you at that point. It's not okay to do it. It's not okay just to drop it on the floor. I should take responsibility for this, but... Well, he did it. I suppose that makes it okay. If, if he did it, if she did it. And then, looking around, just make sure... No, the sign of a guilty conscience straight away. Running away. If your conscience is telling you, don't drop the wrapper, doesn't matter what he or she did, don't drop it. Sometimes our consciences can jab us on an, on an issue, and actually we might observe other Christians and they seem perfectly free. Well, he's drinking alcohol. I was, I was brought up to believe. Christians should be teetotal, we shouldn't touch it at all. But, well, if she's drinking, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll have a glass too. It must be right, because she's a Christian. Now, at that point, you're still damaging your conscience. The thing to do is to say, no, I'm not going to damage my conscience. If I'm not convinced, I'm not going to drink it. Maybe in reading the Word, you see, hmm, later on in this letter, Paul wrote Timothy and said, Take a little bit of wine for your stomach's sake. You might be reading in the Gospels and see Jesus turned water into wine so that a party can continue. We read in in the book of Ephesians, Don't get drunk on wine. Well, that's a very clear instruction. So clearly, this is a. It's okay, but in moderation. Right. Okay. Now, I've informed my conscience with the word of God. It's not that I just copied what someone else was doing let's not ignore our conscience But when we do have a conscience that we have damaged, what do we do at that point? And for some, in a case of oh, we, we have that, sense, that guilt feeling, we know we shouldn't have, shouldn't have, but we did. Now that what do we do to actually get a clear conscience? And sometimes what we, can be, what we can feel is the appropriate step to take is, well, I have sinned. It was a deliberate choice. I chose to set aside what I know God says. And I went for it anyway. What do I do now? It's going to take a long time to deal with this. And we, we can kind of think, well, our, the solution is somehow to live in the shadows for a bit. I, I'm, I've put myself at arm's length with God. I, I can't just come back into fellowship with him. Um, And it's good to recognize that sin does matter. It does affect our relationship with God. But rather than come to God in repentance and faith to receive a clear conscience, we can drift off into the shadows thinking, I guess I've got to build up my spiritual brownie points. Spiritual merit marks again. If I, if I read the Bible so many times, if I do many, so, so many good works, if I do this and that, then at some point, maybe I will be able to work myself back into God's uh, favour. And at that point, after some, it's going to take a while, but I'll, I'll work at developing a good conscience again. Well, that's just going back to law. That's why the book of Hebrews was written. You don't get a clear conscience that way. Don't drift away from Jesus. Come back to him. If we've None of us can say we haven't sinned. If we confess our sins, as we're told in 1 John, chapter 1, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We draw near to him. We confess our sin. It means turning away from it. Maybe there are some deliberate steps to take to make sure I don't just wander back in the same direction. No, I'm... Choosing to be holy, I'm choosing to walk away from that. I'm choosing God's way. But now, God, would you forgive me? Because of what Jesus has done at that point, because He is faithful and just, you have been forgiven. You have been cleansed. Your conscience is clear. You've got to then stand firm. Oh, I should. I. I don't feel forgiven. I should maybe, maybe I have to repent again, confess it again and then again, and then again, and then again, until I feel okay. don't, Don't take your instructions from your feelings. Take it from the Word of God. Stand on the Word of God. And we grow in having a good conscience, recognizing it, not damaging it. And also, we want to be a people cultivating sincere faith. We are uh, Christians. Are believers? People who believe. People of faith. People who believe that God is trustworthy. People who believe that God saves. People who believe that God is good. We we persevere through storms and challenges and difficulties, persuaded that God is good and that His ways are best. The dodgy elders of Ephesus have drifted away from faith. It's no longer sincere. They aren't convinced that God is good. Therefore, they talk a lot. They sound clever, but their teaching only brings controversy and confusion. If anyone listens for a long time, they're just going to become clouded and uncertain about, what's God like? Can I trust him, really? Is he really good? Perhaps we can drift into thinking that in some ways, God wears the mask. Oh, God loves us until the mask drops. He loves us. He doesn't love us. He loves me. He loves me not. We can, um, we can drift into um, uncertainty if we're not sta- taking a firm stand on the, on the gospel and on the truth. This was Satan's successful strategy. In the garden, did God really say you can't eat from the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? No, no, God, God said we can't eat the fruit from that tree. Ah, do you know why that was? That's because it, if you eat that tree, God knows that you'll become like Him, knowing good and evil. What Satan was suggesting is that God was wearing a mask. He was pretending love, but there was really an ulterior motive. That God wants to spoil their fun. God wants to limit them. God wants to restrict them. He doesn't want them to be free. He wants them to live this narrow life. There could be so much more. But God's saying, no, you can't have it. As though God is wearing the mask. And that's so important. If we're going to be and, and grow in being a community of... Love, it comes from sincere, sincere faith. It comes from being convinced. God is love. He's not wearing a mask. When Jesus uh, said to his disciples, that verse we mentioned earlier in, in John chapter 15 and verse 12, my command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. If we're to be a a people who are of love, it's not something that we just adopt, put on and put off. It's going to come from the fact that we're convinced that's what God is like. That's the way in which he's loved us. There was no point before before we, we were created, when God, as it were, decided to put love on as though it was some some technique they'll they'll worship me they'll follow me if they're under the impression that i love right i will i'll adopt a mask i'll i'll put that on no it's it's who he is he he never it, it, he didn't reach a point where he decided to be loving he has always been a god of love a god in relationship God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, loving. And as a as a fruit of that love, he created us that we might know his love. That's what Paul is praying about. That's his goal. He's kneeling. For this reason, I, I bow before the Father. I kneel before the Father. Oh, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Are you convinced of the love of God? That's what stirs us to be a community of kindness. That we, we know it to be true. We've taken it, we've received it by faith. If our feelings tell us something different, we come back to the word of God. We come back to the cross. We come back to the place where God's love was demonstrated, and He continues to demonstrate it. Let's be that community of love. Let's be utterly persuaded. Oh, not oh! I'm God loves other parts of the body more than He loves me. I'm the toe. I love my toe. I know what my toe is there to help me do. If you didn't have a toe, if you didn't have toes, your sense of balance would. Your ability to stand be completely compromised. You want to love your toes. Whatever part of the body we might be or might think we are. God says, I love you with an everlasting love. That never changes. That doesn't ever deteriorate. It never needs to grow because it couldn't be more than what it is already. Oh, I want them to know how wide, how broad, how deep, how high how it's beyond understanding, but I want you to know it. Paul's praying. That's the love that is for us. Let's receive it. Let's remind each other of it. Let's grow in it. We can only live a life of love if that's where we're rooted and established. Okay? Amen.